a Keep Productive production. Welcome to the Tools They Use podcast. Interviews with professionals about how they use apps, software, habits, and routines every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tools They Use podcast. It is Francesco here, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Jill Duffy. Jill, it's great to have you. Where are you joining us from? Oh, thanks for having me. I am in Bucharest, Romania. Wow. And am I right in saying you lived in, did you live in London for some time or? I did. Um, some years ago, I lived in London. I've also lived in Chennai, India, and a couple of places in the US. Wow. That's like, <laughs> that's very uh, distance between them. And yeah, um, yeah that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, what, what one's been your favorite so far? I'm, I'm having a ball in Bucharest. Um, it's a really fun city with a lot going on, but not too much going on. So I really like that balance here. Brilliant. Ah, it sounds fun. Um, I've got to visit it one day. Uh, it's definitely on one of my lists. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Brilliant. And you've, you're, you're, quite the, um, you're quite the productivity uh, app lover, am I right? Yeah, so I started covering productivity apps um, while I was working full-time at PCMag.com, and I'm still very close with PCMag, but I I work for them now as a contributing editor and a freelancer. Um, But productivity apps kind of came into my life there where I reviewed a lot of them, uh, and I just found that they were a great fit for me because I loved them, but not in such a way that would make me biased toward them. So I love them in this sort of objective, critical way where I I really enjoy picking them apart, looking for what should be working better and thinking about the ways that they do improve people's lives. Amazing. And how long has that been like a passion roughly for you? Uh, Probably since about 2010 or so. Okay. So a good 10 years. It's uh, really good. And do you find yourself like constantly uh, recommending apps to people around you? (laughs) Um, sometimes I think, you know, the more I work in the technology space and get to know what's here and what's important, the more I like to boil down for people, um, sort of top tips and they generally come down to security things. So for example, I'm a huge fan of password managers. You could make the case that they are, um, productivity tools as well, because they do save you the time and hassle of remembering all your passwords. But if, if I'm going to give somebody advice on what kind of tools to use, I usually will start there because I think it's just infinitely more important than the small productivity gains you might get from, uh, you know, say a writing app or a to-do list manager. So I, I try to think of it more in the order of importance rather than what I love and what I find near and dear. Yeah, I like that approach. That's, that's quite uh, objective. Um, and obviously, uh, you have a, a few applications, productivity applications in your life. Um, maybe you can go through us some of those applications that you use for work and uh, life. Sure. Uh, probably the one that I use the most would be spreadsheets. It's very simple, um, but what I like about spreadsheets is I am in complete control over what's in them, how they look, how they're sorted when I use them, where I can access them. Uh, Most of my spreadsheets are in Google Sheets right now, but I use them really for everything. So for example, as a freelance writer, I keep track of all of the pitches 
that I send to editors. I keep track of all the articles I write, when I invoice for them, how much I charged, when I submitted it, when I did the edits on it. And all of those things could go into another system, but it would really take me a lot of time to customize it and get it to be exactly the way I want. So I find spreadsheets are just a very low key way to do it where I feel like I'm in control and I have everything I need. So why make it more complicated than that, right? <laughs> That's it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so inside of the spreadsheets, is it like, so obviously you've got some of the, the work that you do in terms of like statuses on invoices and work. Uh, that's coming out but do you have like task management in there or no so for task management I tend to use Todoist Um, that's my daily list of what should I be working on Um, do I have a deadline and and it might actually be duplicated so if I have a really important deadline I might put it in the spreadsheet and put it in Todoist and it's kind of like like double entry accounting or something, right? Like I have two places where I'm going to see that information regularly. I'm going to be reminded of it. Um, and I can also tell if there's a discrepancy. So if I've written down one deadline in the spreadsheet and another deadline in Todoist, it means, okay, wait, I need to check myself, review what conversations I've had and make sure I have the right deadline. So it gives me a little accountability there. Um, I also use Todoist for household tasks. So I share a list with my partner and we keep track of the very simple things we need to do around the house, whether it's making a purchase for something or fixing an appliance or whatever. Um, And I also use it for grocery shopping lists because it's just a nice, easy way to do it. I have it on my phone. I can tick off items as I go through the aisles in the store. Um, So that's kind of like my day-to-day task management and and tracking of general things I need to do. Amazing. And do you use, uh, in terms of like a, like a note taker or a mm-hmm. writing application to manage? Because obviously you do a lot of writing. <laughs> yeah. So for, for writing, I work, I work a lot in Google Docs, um, but I do a lot of research and taking notes in Evernote. And the reason is over time, I found that the way Evernote allows me to tag my notes, um, import PDFs, use OCR on images, all of that kind of stuff makes the research that I do a lot easier to find when I'm, when I'm working on something. So for example, let's say I'm working on an article about time management. And four years ago, I read a great study and I took notes on um, you know, the US time survey. I don't remember where that note is. I'm sure it's in a folder that's well labeled, but off the top of my head, I may not even remember that I read that research. So I can just look in my tags and do a quick search and Evernote's going to pop it up for me really easily. Um, That's not to say that Evernote's any better than say Microsoft OneNote or any other note-taking app. It's just the one that kind of came into my life at the right time. And I found that the, the tools that it has worked for me. Um, so that's something that I combat a lot as someone who reviews products is sometimes people give me a little bit of beef about which ones I use in my personal life. And it's, you know, a lot of it is just preference. So I think Evernote does a lot of things really well, but it also does things well for me and for the way that I use it. Amazing. And uh, going back to that point of obviously you uh, being able to decide and sort of push people's opinions aside when it comes to uh, applications, 
why did you specifically go with Todoist? Because there are a few other alternatives out there, um, but it would just be good to know why you chose it. Yeah, so I was using this app for a long time called Awesome Note. And I liked oh, yeah. it, but it was it was buggy at times. And I think I was using it primarily on an iPhone. This is probably, I don't know, five, six years ago. Um, and I just had little hiccups with it and it would lose my history and um, it wasn't cross-platform and I'm always using different devices. So I was reviewing to-do apps and I just really liked Todoist. I found, again, it worked for me. I don't use all of the features that it offers, but it has the right features for the things that I do need. Um, so the ability to make lots of different lists, the ability to share easily, um, color coding, those are all things that I liked. The, oh, you know what's a big one for me is not lifting up my fingers when I'm typing all of the details of a to-do. So I use Todoist a lot in the web browser, and I want to be able to write down the name of the task, what list it's going to, when is it due, who's responsible for it, and anything else I need to know without lifting my fingers from the keyboard. I don't want to mouse around. I don't want to go through menus. I want to be able to just write it. And Todoist has a really nice natural language parsing tool that can figure all that out. So you do need to learn a couple of simple codes like you know a plus sign before the person who you're going to assign it to. And I think it's a, a hash symbol before the um, the list you want to add it to. But once you know those handful of shortcuts, um, it makes using Todoist really simple and quick. And that's something I, I totally value in a to-do list is like, I want to be able to write the thing down and then get back to what I was doing. Yeah, that's really important, especially when you're trying to get as much down as possible capture. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm a big fan of that intelligent input. It is uh, one of those features that you just can't live without. Yeah. <laughs> if you yeah. go to another app, you're like, oh my God, what, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And and obviously like uh, underpinning these applications, do you have um, your own form of workflow or like a philosophy or a methodology um, that drives that? Yeah. Okay. So this is one of those things that was, it's really so deeply ingrained in who I am that I never thought about it much until I started writing a column for PC Mag called Get Organized. So the column came about because my editor came to me and he said, you know, you're really organized. Um, I know in this meeting that we had, you showed everybody your spreadsheet where you're tracking your articles and what you're working on. And that's way more than what most of the other writers are doing. And I said, oh, huh, I had no idea. Yeah. I said, yeah, people don't know this stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, okay. And he's like, well, you should tell them about this stuff. <laughs> and it was it was kind of this, this organic way of reverse engineering what I was doing naturally in order to explain to other people, why is it valuable? What do I get out of it? How does it make my life easier? So the basic system that I use is just I write things down so I don't have to remember them, which is very much in line with um, David Allen and GTD. So that's, that's number one beyond anything else about it is if you write it down, you don't have to think about it. If you have a system that you trust and you know where you write things down, you never have to worry about them either. So the same way that when I walk in the door every day, I put my keys in a bowl and I always put the keys in the same bowl and the bowl never moves. And I never, ever, ever worry about where my keys are. 
right? So if I'm working on an article, it's written down in the spreadsheet and I know it's there. And I know when I wake up in the morning and I open the spreadsheet, spreadsheet's going to tell me what articles I need to work on. Once you develop that trust, everything else comes naturally. So, you know, the fine details of how you do it and how you tag things and, and, you know, whether you use color coding, it doesn't matter. Like all of that is personal preference stuff. The main thing is having some way of writing things down so you don't have to remember them and trusting your system. That's really all it comes down to. Yeah, very much. I, I think I, I believe really uh, fundamentally in that. Like, um, And the good thing is like you were sort of, you sort of were putting blinders on yourself because you were like, oh, this is how everyone does it, right? And then, uh, and then you realized that you actually were a lot more efficient. And, and that's, a, that's a field, right? Am I right in saying that journalists are quite um they're time poor in terms of um you know what they've got to do in terms of writing focus time so you introducing that sort of thing probably changed a lot of people's ways they work right I hope so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would definitely the goal um yeah yeah and you've been uh spending a lot of time uh recently researching uh something for a BBC article which should be out um by the time this podcast goes out, um, about working hours, um, and you mentioned it, it, it comparable to is it World War Two's working hours? World War One. World War One. Um, yeah. And yeah, but uh, please tell us more about that because that'd be great okay. to hear and, and some of your okay. findings. <laughs> I'm going to give you the whole story. So let me set the scene. Yes, it's World War One. <laughs> We're in England, and the war is already underway. So. A whole lot of able-bodied men, let's say between the ages of, I don't know, 18 and 45, they're off fighting the war. And this is the Great War, right? Like the first Great War, a lot of people gone, a lot of people gone to war, a lot of people dying, and it is a bloody, horrible war. Hmm. As things ramp up, England is running out of ammunition. So bombs, torpedoes, whatever kind of munitions they have, they don't have enough of them, but they also don't have a workforce anymore. So they put out a call and they say, able-bodied women, please come to the factory to make munitions. We really need this for the war effort. So they go. And there are a few able-bodied men still left working in those factories too, and a couple of um, teenagers. But for the most part, women are outnumbering everyone else by about four to one. So they all come to the factory and they decide they're going to do this work. And it's really simple work. A lot of it is um, kind of factory production style. Um, One person does one task and they do it over and over again. So the tasks are really easy to count. And we also know exactly how many hours they work because the factory uses electricity. And in these days, electricity was very expensive and kind of difficult to, um, to use, difficult and expensive to use if you weren't actually using it for a purpose. So the factory would power up, everyone came to work. When it was closing time, the factory would power down and everybody would leave. So we know exactly what hours they worked because we can match it to these electricity logs. And we know exactly how many tasks each worker does because they're simple to measure. And the workers are paid on a piece rate, which means you know for every widget you create, you make X amount of money. So this committee comes along and they say, 
we need to pay attention to the health of these workers to make sure that um, in these dangerous conditions where women aren't used to working in factories, we need to be able to give some advice to the, the people running the factory about how much people should work and whether it's paying off, right? So are they working enough hours so that they're producing enough munitions, but are they not working so much that their productivity is starting to dip? So they collected all of this amazing data that has a lot of natural controls built in for it, right? So we know, for example, one control is the women who are working there tend to have the same motivation, we can assume more or less, right? They're volunteering for the war effort and they're being paid on a piece rate. Um, we also know that their hours are highly controlled. Everybody starts work at the same time. Everybody ends work at the same time. Everybody works the same days. Everybody does one task and it's really easy to measure. So they get all of this data. And remember, it's the war. Things are bad. People have to work really long hours sometimes. And Saturday work was still pretty common then. They might work sort of like a reduced hours um, on Saturday, but Sunday work was sort of like coming in and out. So on days when things were, uh, when they need to make a lot of munitions, they would just extend the week through Sunday and people would work two or three weeks straight. All the while, data, 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 all the data is being collected. Now, this guy who is an economics professor at Stanford named John Pencaval, he found all this data and started crunching the numbers on it. And this is 2015, his paper comes out. Um, he has a book called um, The Diminishing Hours at Work, something like that. Mm. Um, and he talks about this study. So I, I rely a lot on his findings in this piece that I wrote. So what's really interesting is when the munition workers didn't take Sunday off, Penkeval compared what was their productivity like in the week before and what was it like after. And he starts to really dig into it to see, okay, when they don't have a day off, productivity goes down. But he also finds that the there are diminishing returns on the number of hours worked. So I don't have all the numbers in front of me now, but he pinpoints when you work this many hours doing this particular labor, right, in this setting, this is the point at which you're no longer being effective and it's no longer in anyone's interest to keep you at work and keep you doing um, this work because it's just not paying off anymore. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. And when you talk to Penn Cabal, I, I emailed with him, you know, he makes sure to point out, okay, we're talking about a very specific group of workers here. But from other studies we've seen, we know that the same effects apply. So the exact number of hours may be different for most people, but we know it's probably somewhere in the range of like 35, 40 to 60 hours per week, where when you're working longer than that, your results are going to go down. So whether it's your output, your creativity, um, the amount of focus time you can have, there, there's a point at which working too much doesn't result in greater productivity. So it's a really cool piece. I'm super excited for the BBC to be um, publishing it soon. And um, I think there's a lot we can learn from studies like this. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll make sure to include it in the link. Um, but it, it's like, 
it's like almost in the 21st century we should sort of be embracing this sort of stuff was there out of curiosity was there any like um because i know i i always lived in birmingham in birmingham they had bourneville factory and there were a few like visionaries i think the the guy who ran that was able to introduce like more um freedom for his employees in terms of like better pay more time with family uh reducing the work hours were there any introduction in that period of time or was it just they just carried on right yeah i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure okay it's it's really interesting because we can definitely take the lessons today and and i think there is definitely that drop off and and uh we have those set hours so thanks for thanks yeah. for telling the story it's really it was really uh well put together yeah, thanks. I, th- I think it's it's just really fascinating because we don't have that many instances anymore where we can collect a lot of data from a lot of people that have good controls built into the, the study itself. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 Very, very interesting. Thank you so much for coming on, Jill. Um, where, my pleasure. Where can people find you after the podcast? So my column, Get Organized, is on PC Mag every week pcmag.com slash get dash organized. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at J-I-L-L-E-D-U-F-F-Y. That's Jill E. Duffy on Twitter. And I write from time to time on a blog called Productivity Report, which is at productivityreport.org. Amazing. And I I was reading one of your pieces the other day about um, the set minimum vacation time for Americans. And I didn't realize that there was no set like there was no minimum requirement. We have none. Can you believe Absolutely that? Americans mental. have no official days off. There's no what and what that means is the government doesn't require employers to give employees national holidays or paid vacation time. So it's pretty standard most 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 full-time employers give 2 weeks um which is only 10 days and typically most employers, but not all, observe 10 national holidays, but it's not at all legislated and almost every other country in the world it is. Oh my God, it's crazy. Yeah, because in, in the UK you have 20 or 21, I think it is. Um, yeah, that's that's absolutely mental. But I mean, studies like this, I'm sure are going to help push push people's mindsets forward. So um, yeah, and, and Jill, we'll probably have to have you on Keep Productive to dive into the spreadsheet stuff because uh, I think people can take a lot away from that. Cool. Happy to do it. Awesome. Thanks, Jill. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Are you a subscriber on the Keep Productive YouTube channel? If not, you'd love it. Software reviews and news. Just search for Keep Productive on YouTube for weekly videos. Thanks for listening to the Tools They Use podcast, a Keep Productive production. See you next time.